Today we're speaking with Leo Kennedy, great-grandson of Sergeant Michael Kennedy. He was one of the police officers murdered by infamous Australian bushranger Ned Kelly in one of the country's most notable historical events in the Stringy Bark Creek Massacre in the state of Victoria. The story of Ned Kelly is Australian folklore, considered a, a hero by much of the country as someone who stuck it to the law. He was captured in 1880 during a shootout with police while wearing makeshift body armor and subsequently was hanged after being found guilty. Leo's written a new book titled Black Snake, the real story of Ned Kelly, and he joins us today. So how are you this morning, Leo? Very well, Jess. How are you going? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Doing a, a bit of last-minute research last night before we were able to get you um, on the phone for this podcast today. Uh, you know, I've uh, I think as we spoke just briefly before we turned on the on the recording, I'm Canadian originally. I moved out here sometime around 2004, so I didn't grow up with the uh, the the myth uh, of Ned Kelly, but it's certainly something I've grown to be familiar with while living out here. And as we're we're both located in the country, a lot of People will listen to this who, who are based overseas and probably are unfamiliar with uh, you know, Ned Kelly and, and his uh, story and, and myth. So would you mind just taking a minute to take us through uh, who he is as a person and, and his statue in Australian folklore? Well, Ned Kelly was the child of a convict uh, and a young lady that came out from Ireland. He had a, quite a shocking upbringing as a child. Uh, he ended up watching his father die of alcoholism and he didn't have very good role models uh, with the uh, remaining males that were left around the place, uh, such as his uncles on the Kelly side and uncles on the Quinn side. They were in and out of jail for horse theft or uh, bashing people. So quite a horrible upbringing. Um, he was a truant. Um, he had the opportunity to really start as a, on a farm, etc., and have a normal life, but chose not to go that way. He uh, went into, shall we say, the family business. Um, surprisingly, his uh, mother apprenticed him to a bushranger called Harry Power, and he got that taste for having control over people with a gun. Uh, he was caught, and he gave Harry Power, he gave Harry Power away. Um, out of that... Uh, the police basically uh, talked Ned round to giving up Harry Power for Ned's freedom. But out of all that, um, when he did have the opportunity to go straight, he didn't take it. And again, back into the family business. Uh, he's, over time, his crimes just grew more and more violent and more and more audacious. He went from horse theft to attempted murder of a policeman, to uh, the murder of three police at Stringybark Creek uh, and uh, became outlawed along with uh, others that uh, took part in those murders and uh, then took, took a role of basically uh, performing terrorist acts, uh, taking over, for example, um, stations, equivalent of, of a ranch in another country, uh, holding people hostage, robbing banks and basically terrorising a large area of the colony of Victoria as it was at the time and even up into New South Wales, another colony. And it ended with a shootout with police and uh, horribly, again, he had hostages and those hostages wore some of the police bullets. So there were there was a lot of damage to a lot of people other than the outlaws who were in makeshift armour 
which instead of uh, protecting them, ultimately it was their downfall. It trapped them. And yes, he was hanged for his crime of the murder of one policeman. That's uh, all he ultimately uh, ended up being hanged for. But there were a whole lot of other horrible events and victims of Ned Kelly. And from there, somehow, and I think it may have been the aura of the armour and the audaciousness of his acts, he began to be glorified because no one could really fathom uh, the, the audacity of him. And over time and through movies and popularisation and art and media, his criminality got brushed away and more and more he became a hero as the thing from an anti-hero um, instead of infamous, he started to be described as famous. And coming from uh, the perspective of uh, the victims uh, of Ned Kelly, uh, this is just quite hard to take, uh, given uh, the shocking crimes that he committed. Now, uh, as well, you're the great-grandson of Sergeant Michael Kennedy, who was... Um murdered at, at this point in time. Do you, can you provide a little bit of background on your own family history? Because I'm quite interested as well. Um, both families on, on sides of the law here were Irish resettlers, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. So um, if, you, if you do a comparison between uh, Sergeant Michael Kennedy um, and Ned Kelly, uh, I described Ned Kelly's um, impoverished upbringing um, and quite a, quite a shocking upbringing Michael Kennedy had an impoverished upbringing also. He survived through the potato famine in Ireland. Uh, however, he was brought up in a, a lawful family. Um, his parents were tenant farmers. Uh, he worked hard. He went all the way through school as far as he could. And only one son could stay on the land. Uh, and that was his older brother. Michael became a labourer. And then he saw an opportunity and whereas Ned went uh, and was an apprentice to a bushranger, Michael became a policeman in the Dublin Constabulary. And he was there for almost two years. In that time there, he observed and talked to a lot of the Dubliners that were leaving and going to Victoria, this land of opportunity. You could find gold, you could own land, and with that opportunity to own land, uh, that, was, that was something... Uh, very attractive to, to the the Irish who could not. They were all tenants at that stage, and apart from the English landlords. But the other element there was, uh, as a constable in the police force, uh, you could marry. You couldn't not could not do that in Ireland, but you could do it in Victoria. So there was all these attractions to go. So he uh, went home uh, and with his parents gathered up their belongings and headed out to Victoria. So you've got. I suppose a bit of anomaly here uh, that both from Irish backgrounds and both uh, impoverished. However, look at the different result. Uh, one uh, aspired to be lawful, um, became a policeman, and his reputation as, as a policeman was described as exemplary. Reading his police uh, record is quite amazing. You see these words such as zeal, acting courageously, um, and, and in one area that he worked, in, a, in an area called Dune, he was given a testimonial, and his send-off was the equivalent of a year's salary. That's how much they appreciated him being there and protecting their community. So quite a different person to what Ned Kelly became. 
And so what do we know about police officers around that time? So I, I last night, because um, Ned, Ned Kelly, for, for listeners, he sort of fits into this Australian mythology. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, the Southern Cross and the Eureka Stockade. And while I was reading about that as well, they're talking about how um, even in the stockade was what two or three decades beforehand. They're talking about how a lot of the police officers were uh, crims who had served their time. So was there still this sort of mix mash of criminals who were police officers and, or were they finally bringing over, bringing them over from, uh, I guess from the homeland? Uh, correct. There was quite a change occurred in, in policing. Um, so whereas uh, 20 plus years before that uh, they, they uh, were quite desperate to get police um, and uh, grab basically people who were not necessarily perfect uh, and from uh, not perfect backgrounds. You, you roll forward this 20 years and you've got Victoria growing um, from a population of 50,000 to half a million people in a very short space of time, about a decade. You have this massive influx. So just imagine that you've got 500,000 people uh, 20% of the population is actually Chinese because of all uh, the gold and also some of them were uh, indentured labour. But when you look at the police force, the 1,100 men, 80% of them were Irish. They were the poorest of the poor, taking the job that nobody else wanted. Only 30 police were actually born in the state of Victoria. So they had this quite uh, odd mix and of them, about 40% had been in the Irish Constabulary and about 5% had been in the Dublin Constabulary. And they were quite different police forces. Um, the Irish Constabulary did have a reputation for cracking down on anyone who was uh, out of line. They were quite harsh. No two ways about it. The Dubliners had different methods and Michael was a Dubliner. But you had this mix of uh, policing. You also had, um, they imported 50 London policemen to try and instill uh, what the Bobbies did in London into the Victorian police force. So you had these different, I suppose, three main different influences uh, in the Victorian police force. Uh, do you find, uh, you, know, you know, the book is about changing the perception or, or getting to the truth of who Ned Kelly was. But for people like myself, there's the perception of sort of the the dubious history of police work around this time when it was a little bit more lawless. Is this another area of conversations where where you have to sort of explain? Because you're talking about your uh, great grandfather in an exemplary fashion based on documentation, but again the 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 culture, the myth, and the movies that were fed sort of provide this context of uh, you know pretty dirty police around that sort of time who, you know, took it upon themselves to to interpret the law in their own way? Um, so th- th- there, were, there was a mixture. Um, there are characters in Ned's life, such as uh, Constable Hall, uh, Irish Constabulary. Uh, he, he really did work hard on people, um, no two ways about it. He was a, a tough cop. He interpreted the law in his own way. And, and that's what I was uh, trying to get to before was, the Irish Constabulary behaved in that rough type of way. Uh, the Dubliners did not. The Londoners did not. They were policing for the people. They were there to protect the community. And that's the way they went about their business. So 
if you take also who they were dealing with, there was an influx from Van Diemen's Land, another colony in Australia. So that we would say Tasmania for, Tas- for listeners. Tasmania, you would say today, that's correct. Uh, they, uh, there was 9,000 9, ex-convicts came in and uh, they took it upon themselves to defy authority and they really just transposed what they thought about their guards onto the Victorian police force. And that's, that's for, one of those, for example, was uh, Ned Kelly's father. So a lot of Ned's attitudes towards police, etc., came from his father uh, and that attitude of uh, anti-authority and don't trust the police. But it's a, it's a gross generalisation to describe all police in that way. And it's not just the Michael's police record. Uh, a policeman who is uh, working on Stringy Bar Creek and revitalising uh, what's presented there uh, in the last few months uh, visited Mansfield, which was Michael's last town. And people he met in the street today describe how their grandparents and great-grandparents described Michael Kennedy as a great policeman, as a man of his community. So it's not just from his record. It is from the community he worked in. His reputation and his memory are preserved in people's oral histories of what a good policeman, what a fair policeman he was. And these were really tough times on the police as well as on everybody else. No one had an easy time in those days. They had to deal with drought, they had to deal with flood, they had to deal with a new country in a different environment. And then on top of that, they had to deal with people like Ned Kelly who were stealing their horses and stealing their cattle, which was really driving them down rather than raising them up. So they looked upon police to provide that sense of confidence so that they could go about their business, so they could feel, so that they felt safe and, and uh, secure. Well, it's probably due to, to get onto that, but you've touched on quite a few interesting points. Do, do you know much of the historical sort of, you know, Irish uh, diaspora that, that, that ended up in, in Victoria? I mean, it's quite interesting what you're saying about the hardline policing of, of Dubliners. Is there a reason why... You know, they were so much, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, uh, uh, violent, I guess, compared to the other two groups of, of police. Uh, so just to clarify, there was the Irish constabulary that were the, the more violent ones. Okay. Uh, the, Dublin, the Dubliners were the, the peacekeepers. Okay. Um, so the, the, what, what I've studied and researched in relation to the Irish constabulary, they cracked down on a lot of dissent that arose within Ireland itself. So they had to do some pretty harsh acts uh, under the instruction of basically a British government. So they did crack down on people that wanted freedom, wanted their rights, etc. They did not uh, allow people to assemble. They did not allow people to express their views uh, in any any way, shape shape or form. they, They were tough. So... That was really the background of the Irish constabulary. The Dubliners within Dublin were different and did different types of policing to the example I've given for the, the Irish constabulary. Mm. And and so with with the Irish coming to Australia, is was the, the Great Famine or the Potato Famine, was that one of the 
key drivers that of, of why we saw this mass immigration? Uh, and it's with the Irish uh, dysphoria that they did go to other places uh, in the world, United States, uh, North, North America, uh, etc. A lot of it was around. They could not own land. They were hungry. They had to give part of what they earned to a church they didn't even belong to. They wanted to get away and they wanted to start in, in a new life and a new place. So that's where when someone's talking about the opportunity to, to find gold, to own land, to, do, to have more freedoms than you have in your own country uh, and to not be hungry, there's a lot of attraction to get out of where you are and, and move away. So, uh, getting back to elements of the book, where, where did the title come from? Black Snake is uh, it's clearly not too positive. Uh, what was the, the motivation for, for titling the book that? It's, it was using um, some of the very few words that, that we have recorded of, of what Ned ever wrote. So when Ned did give away Harry Power, the bushranger, um, he was treated within his own people, his own community, as a black snake, uh, so-called, uh, because he had ratted on Harry Power, he'd given him away, um, so therefore he was blackened and he was behaving like a snake. Hence, that's what he wrote to the police, because the police said to him, look, if you want to get out of your situation, write to us, contact us, and we will give you an opportunity to start a new somewhere else. And so he wrote, everyone looks upon me as though I am a black snake. Please respond as soon as possible basically saying, get me the heck out of where I am. And the police did help him, or tried to. They found him a place in, up in New South Wales, many miles away from uh, where he uh, was living, on a sheep station. So he could have started a new life on a farm, away from it all, and had a new beginning. But he decided not to, or his mother decided for him not to, and he had to stay where he was, within his own, and tough it out. And to survive, he had to get tougher, meaner, nastier, and also show that he was not going to be a toady to Constable Hall any longer. He was not going to um, accept the, the rule of law or what police told him to do. He was going to be a Kelly. What, do we know much about his mother? Because what you're talking about him is sort of this person who's forcing him into being a bushranger apprentice, preventing him from moving on to become a, a good citizen. She sounds almost worse of the two in terms of her parenting skills. It's, it's uh, a bit hard to, to pick uh, exactly where Ellen, Ellen was in some of these aspects. There's been that much written about her and around her. Uh, and I do know Kelly descendants, but it's, it's a place they don't wish to go um, when I talk to them about this. And I don't know whether that's because uh, uh, she was, uh, she was the, the mother. But when you look at what was going on, he lost his father at the age of 11. The decisions were being made by the mother. And also her link with her uncle, uh, his uncles. You've got his uncles into horse thieving, his uncle's into bashing people, and there's this association of who does Ned go with, who does Ned ride with, who is in jail, who is not in jail. So for a time it was Harry Power, 
And then who is it after that that he is then being placed with or told to go with by his mother until he starts to make his own decisions? So at that, in his teen years, uh, from, from 11 into his, his teens, she is the influential person. She is the one who has the contacts. She is the one who's running a shanty. But in her defence, she has no husband. She has no, very few ways to make an income and earn a living. So what are her choices, given she has quite a number of young children? She was in quite a desperate situation, I would say, in her defence. But rather than be lawful, it looks very like, and even the fact she ran a shanty, she did not get a liquor licence, she sold illegal liquor. So very much she was on the uh, lawless side. What uh, I guess we'll just clarify the question. So Ned Kelly grew up and he became a bushranger. For, for people who are unfamiliar, because it's a very Australian term, would you, is, would you classify that exactly the same as, as an outlaw in sort of American cowboy culture? Um, there, are, there are similarities, um, whether it's your Jesse James uh, in, the, in the United States uh, or, a, or a character like that. Um, someone who started off perhaps in, in, in theft and then moved on into uh, other illegal violent practices. So typically a, a bush ranger would act outside the law and whether it was Harry Power who would hold people up, whether it was uh, an individual or a stagecoach at the point of a gun. And I suppose that's the traditional thing and what people see in movies is that holding up of people. But Kelly's acts were different and there's various stages. So in one stage he was a horse thief and a cattle thief and a thug. He would booze, he would bash people, he would stage fights uh, and there'd be bets on them. That was his life. But from there he escalated into more and more aggressive um, horse thefts, um, taking large numbers of horses at a time, quite defiant, um, and then into... And why he, well, he was an outlaw as distinct from uh, a bush ranger, because I suppose it's one of those law, legal terms. There were bush rangers, but they weren't necessarily outlawed. Whereas I think I suppose in the United States and Northern America, it would be someone is an outlaw because there hasn't been that act or offence by them where they have been declared an outlaw. So that's one of the differences. Is there was a a Felons Apprehension Act uh, initiated after the murders at Stringybark Creek. And Ned Kelly, his brother Dan, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart were declared outlaws in the Victorian sense of the word because of the murders of three policemen. At the time, you mentioned Ned Kelly writing. What was his relationship with the media? Because it sounds like uh, he would have letters published. Um, would this get out across uh, Australia as we knew it at that point in time? Would this media go overseas back to you know the, the motherland of England? Um, so with the, with the media, um, after Ned was declared uh, an outlaw, he but basically he had written uh, the letter to police, uh, which included Black Snake in it, but, but apart from that, he, he could barely 
read and barely write, and people would read newspapers to him, um, and he would dictate. So the Cameron letter and then the Geraldry letter, which was really an enhanced version of the Cameron letter, were letters that he dictated. There was a lot of concoction in them. There was a lot of um, vivid language in them. He claimed victim status, and then he threatened to terrorise in the same letter. And what he did with those letters was he tried to... The first one he just he sent to a politician, and the politician didn't do anything with it. But with the Geraldry letter, he actually tried to get it published. But the publisher in Geraldry had escaped the town, so he handed it to a, a bank teller. And there it sat. But parts of it were put up and published and released into the media. And the media fed off this story of um, Ned Kelly and his outrages all through the time after the Stringy Bar Creek murders. Um, it was one of those news stories that kept kept going, uh, and he was more and more audacious uh, with his uh, taking of hostages and robbing banks. So the media fed off it, and it was part of the, what went into the media. But as well as what he put into the media, he also wrote a number uh, with his gang and him dictating, wrote a, had a number of poison pen letters written to various police, uh, promising to stuff them into uh, a hollow log of a tree and set it on fire and all these kinds of threats towards them. So there was this, uh, I suppose, campaign of nasty letters to police as well going on in the midst of everything else he was doing. And it... It culminates in this shootout in, in Glenrowan in Victoria, which involves your grandfather. And now, what, one of the historians that I was listening to the other night um, had said that you know during the time you talk about the um, the you know the wording and the the violence implicit in Ned Kelly's writing, but he was saying that at the same point in time, police were also boasting that they were going to you know kill him or or this that they were going to shoot to kill. Um, is that part of, in, in your opinion, or what you found part of this hyperbole, or is there any truth to that as well? Um, I'd, I would call it hyperbole. So just to clarify, uh, in, your, in your lead in there, Stringybark Creek occurred in October 1878, and that's where my great-grandfather was murdered, um, along with two other police. Glen Rowan happened about 20 months later in June 1880, and that's where uh, a number of police ultimately surrounded uh, the Kellys uh, at, at an inn at Glen Rowan. So he talked within the Geraldry letter of um, police being violent and police uh, saying they were going to kill him uh, in there and also back at Stringy Bark Creek. At Stringy Bark Creek, with the policeman he captured, he kept on taunting this policeman saying, you came to kill me, you came to kill me, just like those bastards over in New South Wales did to that other person. Words to that effect. So what he was trying to justify there was, I'm attacking you because you came to kill me. But there was nothing in it. Sergeant Kennedy had a record for capturing people. The warrants were for the arrest of the two brothers. They went with two sets of handcuffs 
and the limited weapons they could obtain uh, to perform the capture. So a whole lot of hyperbole from Ned basically to justify his action for attacking the police uh, rather than him taking off and fleeing away from them. Okay. And what do we know about him while he was alive and the perception of him? Uh, I've read that he was able to avoid capture for a few years through a network of of supporters. Um, and even upon his capture, there were thousands of people demanding his release. Can you frame, I guess, the personality uh, of Ned Kelly while he was alive? So, so while Ned was alive, uh, he did have a group of sympathisers. Uh, quite a number of them were uh, family and extended family through intermarrying and uh, various contacts. So placed in the areas he stole and moved cattle uh, to and from, he had what were termed sympathisers. Um, they were in on his thieving, and then when he became outlawed, yes, they did in different ways support him, uh, hide him, provide him with information, provide him with food. Not necessarily all of them, some of them. And this is where, when uh, writers get a hold of it, they seem to extrapolate the numbers. So the family and uh, friends interconnections that were in the business, so to speak, was in the vicinity of 100 to 150 people in an area that comprised over 10,000 people. Those he robbed and stole from and threatened of that 10,000 did not like Ned Kelly. They were not fans of Ned Kelly. And then... Ultimately, after he was captured at Glen Rowan and tried for the murder of Lonigan and convicted to hang, there was a petition that, was, that did get circulated. It ended up with a whole lot of um, false names, forgeries, in amongst some genuine signings. So whilst there were over 30,000 supposed signatures, it wasn't all real. And this, this is one of the myths that uh, gets played up is, oh, there were over 30,000 signatures calling for him to be reprieved from being hanged, but they remain in jail for the rest of his life, versus how many were actually true signatures versus the ones who, were, who signed out of fear as well, which is also uh, stated and captured uh, in my manuscript and uh, partly in my book. And there is, um, just already from what I've read online, some of the uh, individual reviews of the book, there's a bit of anger over the um, the, the repurposing uh, of Ned Kelly's history. Why? <clears throat> I guess we'll talk about first of why people are angry about that, but at what point did you notice um, the, the perception of Ned Kelly moving from, uh, you know, crim to national icon or hero? Um, probably I was um, born into it, but protected from it. So it's really, uh, as, I, as I grew from and finding out about the age of seven in, into my teens, I, I realised, hang on a minute, some people actually believe this guy ha- was okay in some way because he had a poke at authority, he defied authority. But that, that seemed to be all it was at that stage. Um, it, it really took on a life of its own uh, after the centenary and uh, 
1978, where tourism bought into it. So in addition to a series of bad movies and books that were all about Ned and not about his victims, you suddenly had a tourist trail. And along that tourist trail, the police were portrayed as bad guys. Ned was portrayed as a a victim. His victims were portrayed as nuisances or complainers, etc. So everything was turned towards Ned and this Nedification and glorification of his acts, even though they included bashings, theft, murder, hostage-taking, and even a a terrorist act of trying to uh, have a train tip off its tracks and uh, derail. Ed, for people that, that aren't from Australia, can you uh, sort of explain this this true blue culture? Because this is what I've really noticed him integrate with. I see, you know, Ned Kelly sort of mixed in, I think, as I spoke with earlier, around, you know, the tales of the Eureka Stockade, the Southern Cross flag. This is sort of when you see, um, you know, workers' demonstrations, it's all sort of blended in with this CFMEU sort of culture. Um, from it, it, it's, it's pretty uniquely Australian. Could, could you sort of provide a, a bit of summation for people that, I guess, don't live here or didn't grow up with that? It's a little bit hard for me to explain, actually, because I, I don't buy into it at all. Um, I, I'm completely puzzled as the um, people who try and make links between the Eureka Stockade, where downtrodden miners who had to pay very expensive licences uh, and were badly treated by rough police, Um, stood up for their rights. Uh, That's quite a different situation to someone who was a horse thief uh, and was put out of business by the police, basically, and then became an outlaw. So I I don't allow or cannot justify any connection between what the protesters at Eureka Stockade did and Ned Kelly who was a murderer, the Eureka Stockade, people were not, and people trying to link to that. It really, to me, gets back to this iconic armour of his and use as a symbol, but also what some writers have done where they've added myth and mistakes and given Ned causes that he never belonged to. This is a guy who stood over people, but unions, for whatever reason, claim he stood up for the rights of the poor and the downtrodden. He did not. It's a mistake. It's an error to use him in that way. Some claim he was a Republican, and that is an utter falsehood. He never used the word. Uh, Kelly gang descendants completely refuted. It is an absolute myth. So you have this problem that people have used him to represent things that he never, ever stood for. Interesting. This this happened more than a century ago. I mean, how did you get involved in this and and why, you know, what's your interest and how has this affected you personally? Because it's generations removed from from your own life now. I grew up um, in in a family that we're in a house where... His name was never mentioned, but I grew up with these stories about a uh, exemplary policeman uh, who was murdered in the performance of his duty and a stoic widow that brought up their five children after he was killed. 
So that, they were, I suppose, my heroes and the, and the people I looked up to were people that stood up for right, um, looked after people in the community um, and contributed. So that, that was, I suppose, where I came from and it was just, just this complete surprise that people would think of the person who murdered my great-grandfather in any way as some sort of symbol to look up to. So that's what I had had to wrestle with uh, for my life is that that complete opposite position that that's occurred with some people. Now you've mentioned a couple of times that that you're in contact or speak with the Kelly family relatives. Do you want to talk to, about you know, how that started and the relationship that you have with them these days? So in my quest to get the truth told about uh, the police, so that uh, as a family we could. Uh, remember them respectfully. Um, I uh, got involved with uh, a Kelly descendant through a documentary. Uh, I needed an archaeologist to relocate the correct places where the police camp was at Stringy Barrack Creek where they were attacked uh, and where my great-grandfather had been murdered by the Kelly gang. How did they fix that problem? Because I've read previously that tours and things were presenting the wrong side of the creek as the uh, scene of the shootout. And that's one of the things that you had to correct. That's, that's right. So after 25 years, people were taken to the, to the wrong side of the creek. Um, so by being involved in this documentary, I, I, I believe the only way I could get it resolved was to engage an archaeologist. I could not afford an archaeologist, but by participating in a documentary, they would have the archaeologist. So that's how, that's how I achieved that. Through that um, documentary, I met a Kelly descendant. And we walked around for a day on set, mic'd up and talking. And we shared elements of our family history. And it was very obvious to us very soon that we had more in common than we had different. Both our families had been negatively impacted by the myth. Other people had taken our story and our people and turned them into something they were not. People were making money out of this story and not listening to us and not letting us tell our story. So that's why we decided we should help one another. We both have hurting families um, and it, the impact has been quite bad on some members of our families over time. And we are just so sick and fed up with the pain caused to our family by people who are making money out of it and not letting us tell the truth and them not showing the truth. Hence, the rework of Stringy Bark Creek, the writing of a book. And I, I, from what I've gathered as well, the Kelly family also rejects the current myth of uh, the heroics of Ned Kelly. Um, I, I find that quite interesting because it seems like they could benefit from this. Why? Um, in your discussions with them, why are they so much more open and, and truthful about who he was? Well, they're very cautionary because he had a quite negative effect on um, his own family. They were treated as pariahs for two or three generations. Um, and again, they don't admire the acts and the lengths he went to. It, it's They don't see any justification for uh, admiring misdeeds and illegal acts. 
it's 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 as simple as that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm talking with people who are, you know they want to be good good members of the community. They're respected within their communities. They do not need the baggage of Ned Kelly hanging over their heads. They want to get over over that and get on with their lives. And similarly, they see us hurt, and they they know that we want to honour. Um, our police ancestors, uh, and they're horrified that at different points in time people have smashed the headstones of these three policemen. People have torn monuments out of the ground at Stringybark Creek dedicated to these policemen. But they are, they are just as upset about that as we are because these men lost their lives performing their duty and they do not deserve degradation and discrimination and the mistruths told of them to utter falsehoods and demonisation. It is just unfair to those men and it's most unfair to the descendants of them. So what have you encountered then since the, you know, the, the book's been out for about a month? You're doing quite a bit of press around it. I assume that you have been dragged into um, some form of conflict of dialogue with people who don't uh, believe your version of the truth. Um, so it's, it's been, been interesting as I've been around. I, I've only really had um, three three people out of um, six presentations where they had a, a different view, but using reason and logic and the facts and presenting them back to them it ended up being a quite a short conversation. <laughs> so with this book then, it, it's out. Um, obviously, you, you want to get to the truth and talk about it, but what else are you hoping for this book to uh, achieve in, in the longer term? In the longer term, I hope that uh, Australians look for true heroes, not made-up ones. We do have some very good people in our history in Australia that people can put up on that pedestal can adopt the same methods as, uh, can stand up for their rights uh, and insist upon change. And they are not made up. They're real. And we don't have to invent from someone who was a bush ranger who became an outlaw. Uh, we can do better. Leo, thanks for your time today. And thank you very much too, Jess.